Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. I was watching the Australian team at halftime on Saturday with huge admiration as they stayed out in the pitch for their team talk. I don't know if this was shown at all on TV. Quake Cooper yeah, practicing a few yeah. kicks in the background and just kind of staying loose. I was thinking these guys are always one step ahead when it comes to the finer details of physical preparation. Then the news arrives in at 15 of that squad. We're on the rip in Dublin on Tuesday night. Possibly in the Woolshed, Murph. That's where a lot well, of the, the expats go. Yep. And uh, six of them have now been suspended against Scotland. The other nine have received written or verbal warnings. And it occurred to me, thinking about it again, a bit of revisionism in my own head, that staying on the pitch is actually quite old school as well. Yeah. So it's just an entirely holistic, old-fashioned sort someone, of approach. Yeah, someone was saying to me uh, on Twitter, I think, that it was basically an entire junior C hurling match day preparation that the Aussies <laughs> actually went in for. Uh you know, a, a good solid drinking session, but not like the night before, because that'd be that'd be bad. Yeah. But say a couple of nights before, you know, I'd, no shake it off, there. shake Absolutely it off. Absolutely no problem at all. Sure, yeah. nobody pays attention to those video sessions anyway. Of course, and then just by a, Thursday you're back flying fit. Just an excuse to catch up on some Z's. As Shane Morgan, Emma Bird, and Jerry Flanner, you're all on the show today. So looking forward to that. They're going to talk about what lessons can be learned going into the New Zealand match, or more to the point, which of the many lessons mm. that can be learned are the most important ones to learn. <laughs> Let's just one step at a time. Maybe going into the game against New Zealand. I was at the football and the rugby over the weekend, Murph, and maybe I only became acutely aware of this phenomenon because of the grim nature of what was unfolding on Saturday compared to on Friday. But it seems the match day experience on rugby days involves a lot more sound effects than the football. I touched on this on our early edition. Well, whoopee cushions and stuff like that. Well, near enough. Near enough. Near enough. That could be the next step. I touched on this in our early edition of Second Captain's Football, which is out now. Uh, first, your experience starts with a lot of Dropkick Murphys pre-match. Yeah. Probably the most overplayed song in world sport. But uh, Well, we, we can't host a sporting event now without without that song That was played. played twice pre-match. Once in the sort of preamble and then once introducing the Irish team. They were run out to this tune. Yeah. Played again at halftime. Very loud fireworks. I heard that apparently Keith Wood is quite shocked on TV by the loudness of the fireworks as was I Murph gave a little Ned Flanders shriek <laughs> a little bit apparently yeah ah! you've got after a penalty or try you've got a, a whole range of tunes Walk This Way yeah by Aerosmith and Run DMC great mm-hmm. collaboration at the Jump Around House of yep. Pain classic song of the early yep. 90s the biggest I know Ken was shocked by this yesterday when there's a TMO decision going on 
there's a, a really loud heartbeat, mm. like something from an Edgar Allan Poe story. And I, I, even that, that that was even played during the Peter O'Mahony spear tackle mm. TMO decision. So yeah. uh, just don't bother checking if he's seriously injured or not. Or you know, this is quite a, an important moment. Mm. Yeah, red card. <laughs> uh, it is. I know it's it's ridiculous one, and we've really been thinking about this since last Sunday. And, you know, you've named them there, all the staples, all the regular songs that are played at so many grounds around the world. But, I mean, they're just all so, so cliched. Mm. So we've spoken to a number of musical professionals, studio technicians, people in the know, musos, I believe they're called on. And uh, we've come up with the perfect combination for the Aviva that will really get the place rocking. <laughs> so I feel that we've, you know, we've, it's not actually just music. It's a full audio-visual Match day experience. Superb. So if we score a try, we should we should definitely play this. I feel. So yeah, you can see it now, right? On the big screen, recording of Joe Schmidt behind the decks recreating the Maniac 2000 video with perhaps some sexy dance moves from John Plumtree, Les Kiss, and uh, kicking goat Ricky Mur- Richie Murphy just giving it loads behind him. Sure. I mean that's an improvement straight off the bat. I think. Yeah. I think we can we can both agree. A on A few that. whistles and soothers and so forth in the mouths. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You know, it's just it's just a laugh. You know, and so that's that's if we score a try, right? But as you say. There have to be different different tunes for different situations in the game. So if we concede a try, well, I think it's obvious, really. I can't believe someone hasn't hasn't thought of this before. So, right. So while that's playing over the PA, obviously on the big screen, you just play the video. If it, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Although perhaps we could superimpose some Ireland jerseys onto the aliens in the video there. But I, I'm not entirely. Oh, sure. you play the video for the song. There's no special. Yeah. You don't have all the. Irish coaching team looking really glum. No, no, in the background that, of it. No, you play the video and, and the blue lights that go under lads' oh, yeah. cars. You can't have them flashing all over the stadium as well. Now that, Owen, that's atmosphere. That's a real atmosphere. My personal favourite moment, Murph. Yeah, this probably just let it play out there. Yeah, this probably <laughs> summed it up the best. Ireland scored a try at the end. It looked like a try at the end. Yeah, the uh, th- yeah, it was it was jump around. How's yeah. it been? One of the staples that started to get played. The opening strains, I would say, of jump around, Murph. The opening beat. Started to kick in, and then obviously whoever looks after these things realised, oh, this has actually gone to TMO. Then into the heartbeat, then no try. It was just <laughs> short of the. Song for no try, it was though. just short of the. Wah, 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 oh man! At the end, and what do we play if there's a potential spear tackle and we go to the TMO, Murph? Uh, I'm not sure. Oh yeah, okay, that's actually that's more, yeah, more suitable. To be honest, let's just have that. Let's just that have as a default. You know, you absolutely have to play something else fine, but otherwise it's blue by WD. We're going to talk about Sachin. I want to move it on. We're going to be talking about Sachin Tendulkar later on. Yes. One of the greatest cricketers of all time. Also a hugely important person in India. Yeah, and he he retired. retired, That's the point of... uh, Retired this weekend, uh, having played his 200th test match. And this has kind of been a feature of Sachin over the last couple of years, where he's gone after record after record. He stands as one of the great uh, cricketing figures, but there is an argument that maybe he's gone on a little too we'll long. We'll talk more about that later. We're going to start with the rugby. Jerry Flannery and Shane Horgan are ready to go. Emmett Byrne has popped into the studio. Emmett, if you were playing for Ireland, suffered a really bad beating and then found out the opponents have been on the piss midweek. Would that rub salt into the wounds? Um, 
God, it's a hard one. I, to be honest, I think the guy, the way the guys would be thinking this week, it'd be that sort of thing is just is very much irrelevant. Like when, when you're, it's hard to pick yourself up from something like that sometimes, and it, the focus becomes on the next game. And I mean, I don't think that they'd be looking back at that at all. That's really an, an issue for the Wallabies to sort out themselves. I mean, you can see they they took a ban, got the legs kicked off them a bit, like they're dropped for the game. I mean, that's just a statement of just to kind of they don't want that culture. Kind of they, they they've had their issues in the past, like with Curtly Beal and these guys and uh, O'Connor and stuff. With the, with the, the, I suppose the discipline within the team, and I think Ian McKenzie's trying to trying to knock that out. Although if he was going to be really hard line, would he not have just killed them straight away and dropped them for the Ireland game? Would that have been too too awkward because you're then planning for a match? two days ahead of time with a brand new team yeah I suppose he had more time to think about it and he just yeah I think you're exactly right I think he just said look we're going to go through with this one and then sanction him after it and that's what, ha- that's what happened I mean it's just a statement to say that we won't accept this behaviour but I mean I think at this stage of the season for the Wallabies they have a particularly tough season they played the Lions and they had obviously the Rugby Championship after that and it's been a lot of hard games you get mentally worn down and you need something to kind of look forward to and they just went out and adopted what I'd call a barbarian's mentality towards this game and had a few beers and when you ha- you know yourself you go out and have one or two it's like one is too many ten's not enough you, can, you, you know it's the intention probably was there just to go easy yeah well this is what I found again. fascinating Shane I'll bring you in here <laughs> yeah. uh, some of the lads got a verbal warning some got a written warning and some got suspended I don't know at what point a <laughs> verbal warning moves to a written warning the 50 acre bob the 50 acre bob it depends how you can hold your drink it doesn't seem <laughs> particularly fair but I suppose maybe it was a different time uh, that you got in at it that night or, or how uh, compass mentis you were for the video session the next morning I suppose we both know what the uh, ins and outs of it were but uh, you know it sounds a bit old school to say but sometimes if things aren't going right in a camp or if you're trying to build um, a, a really positive energy some of the best things you can do is have a night out I remember we used to have one um, before almost before every Six Nations, now, it wasn't the week of the game, but I think it was like the Wednesday beforehand, and uh, it really brought the team together. You'd have stories, you'd have something to talk about for the week after. There'd be a bit of energy around um, the camp the next week. So yeah, it can it can have a detrimental effect. And on, on, you know, the, the, the week of the game, it's not smart. But um, you know, if you've got a couple of weeks break into a game, I think sometimes it can be one of the best things. And you know, the Ireland team. <laughs> You know, basing the performance on on, on um, Saturday, they sort of looked as if they could do the, a night out, and they're not going to be able to do it. They're not going to be able to have that team bonding session because you couldn't do it that close to an All Blacks game. But uh, you know, maybe if they had one or two in in a quiet corner together after the game on Saturday, it would be no harm. You could also adopt the Jason Leonard mentality, uh, own, which is uh, Clive Woodward is trying to get the discipline instilled into the English team um, when they were building up to the O3 World Cup. And uh, he gave a strict no drinking policy over their training camp leading up to it. And of course, a couple of lads went out and yeah. uh, he, he anticipated this himself and Richard Hill at the time were sitting in the lobby waiting for the players at about like, you know, from 12 o'clock onwards. And a couple of guys were spotted them and started sneaking in windows and stuff like this from the outside. But uh, anyway, there was a big sanction the next day or a, bi- a big meeting the next day regarding like, you know, and there was, he didn't actually catch anyone. But he said, he, OK, I want guys to own up and stuff. So they, they immediately pointed the finger uh, Jason Leonard said, Jason, you were seen coming in at, uh, what were you seen here coming in at, at uh, two o'clock in the morning last night? He goes, don't look at me, I came in at four. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Leonard has to, <laughs> so he is the, that's, that's the, he just didn't care, but sometimes that kind of works. You well, know, yeah. it, it's a bit of crack. It sounds to me, hold on, Jerry Flattery, you're involved in strength and conditioning here and fitness and all those areas. It sounds to me like Emmett Byrne and Shane Horgan are calling for more Jaeger bombs for the Irish team. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I was part of some of the sessions that uh, that Shane was on about the pre Six Nations sessions with Ireland, and 
and it was always good to go out and, and we used to always have a good laugh off Shane how much he used to drink everyone liked to drink but no one liked to, no one liked to drink but uh, no it, it can be good but it has to be timed correctly and I think I think the Australians did did well with the way they dealt with it internally um, if they'd come out and sanctioned the players before the game it would have the, the whole media it would have been a kind of a storm coming into them at the Irish game with the fact that they were able to you know, put the pressure was put back on the players because they knew there was they knew there was going to be there was going to be uh, sanctions on the world, and then they were able to say, "Look, we're going to deal with this thing ourselves." And uh, I think it worked out well for them. Uh, I think the last thing I need to do now is go on the piss. Mm. But um, there there is a there is a place for it in, in in sport at times, but not this week, hopefully. Yeah, we'll move on to. Um, I don't know if there are any crumbs of comfort going into the New Zealand game for Ireland Shane it's, it was such a weird event on Saturday in that there was so much optimism coming into it and it was punctured so badly it was the nature of it it was the lack of aggression it was the, the, the lack of any coherent game plan really in most facets of the of the game it was, it was so disappointing we're a couple of days after that now are you starting to think in any way positively about, about where we're going have you got, have you got any sort of um, are there any crumbs of comfort there was few enough crumbs of comfort from that game, actually. You know, we got off to a bad start and it went downhill from there, really. Um, so it's a kind of game that you really have to just brush off to one side. Uh, of course, you do an analysis of of, um, of what went wrong, but, you know, that's going to be a long analysis session. So you don't want to actually destroy, uh, destroy a team by spending the whole, you know, Sunday and, and Monday uh, looking at what you did wrong. I think the focus would be very much be on uh, the New Zealand game and, you know, you can turn things around in a week. You know, things I've played in in, in teams, and I was talking with Dennis Hickey on, on Saturday night, and he was talking about the the fixture against Scotland in the in the um, the, the foot and mouth season, the reorganised game, and we went in there thinking we were going to actually destroy them, and we got bet out the gate. It was a young enough team, but we got bet out the gate, and it, it, nothing went right for us. We didn't play well. You know, there was huge mistakes from from the majority of the team, and you know we were we were crucified as well, and, and probably rightly so in the media. But we went out a week later and beat uh, an England team to the Grand Slam. So you know there can be a big change in a week. Um, you know, f- for me, there's a, the inaccuracies in the game, and, and Joe spoke about it at, at uh, in the press conference conference afterwards. Inaccuracies, and so did Paula Conn. The inaccuracies were, were very evident there. Um, they weren't accurate at rook time in getting the Australians off the ball, and they weren't accurate at passing. Their passes were hidden inside shoulder almost every way along the back line. And they, I think they went wide too early. They didn't uh, try and tie in any of the um, Australians around the rook uh, or, or you know, generate some, some fast ball. And they didn't do those things. And as a result, it made it very difficult when they're going into midfield off slow, stagnant ball. So they're the things that they look to address. And, and you know, they really have to address them really quickly because if they play in the same vein with the, you know, with that... Um, attitude and skill level as they did last week, they're going to really, really struggle against the All Blacks. Yeah, and attitude is interesting. Jerry, I was sitting in the press box beside uh, an old rival of yours, Jerry Frankie Sheehan, who was looking from quite early on, he was looking at the front row and they were getting beaten up and he was just a, a bit concerned that they didn't look pissed off enough at what was going on. It seemed like kind of a, a, a passive attitude through the Irish team, which we were all a bit surprised about. Did you see that? Um... Yeah, I wouldn't say Frankie Sheehan's really a rival of mine, but um, <laughs> I'd say, I'd say, yeah. Look, I think, I think Ireland underwhelmed across the board, and uh, I think you can like some people, like Rog. Rog mentioned about when Peter Armani got got a beard. 
how the players didn't jump in. Now, I think at that stage of the game, like it was maybe the 73rd minute when the player has been sent off, but I think you can you can tell an awful lot by how how a team responds to a mall because a mall is very much a kind of a you know it's like a it's like a physical kind of a challenge put down there and it's it's two two packs pitted against each other and I think like I think that you know particularly for for like I saw you saw Hooper's try when when he went over and Ireland just got mauled off he just you know they they just the the mall defense is poor there and I think that's like Shane, Shane went back to some poor execution. That was kind of you could see that as well with the, with the work ethic when it came to the breakdown. You know, we had a couple of good one-off runners at times from the likes of Bomani and, and Sean O'Brien, but there was never the follow-up from it. And then our execution at the breakdown was, it was always slow balls. So we never really seemed to challenge in the wider in the wider areas then, like which is normally where Ireland look really dangerous with bringing Drico into the game and stuff. So. I think overall it was kind of like the attitude just seemed a bit flat, and people were disappointed because you know that Ireland can deliver in so many of these areas, but they were just underwhelmed that day. You know, they they really didn't deliver, you know? Yeah, and the fact it was against Australia to be physically intimidated probably by an Australian pack is not exactly um, I think that's a badge probably, of honour, Emmett. No, but I, I think that's a bit of a, an injustice probably to the Australians. Cause I don't think there's any bad teams at this level. And I think just the desire wasn't there to compete with them. And once that isn't there, you don't just go, you don't get it during the game. That's the big problem. And it's very... Why was the desire not there, though? That, that seems well, incredible this is, to me. I'm gonna, this is, the, this is <laughs> what I'm going to say to you now. <laughs> you're, you're, you're jumping in. I uh, Like, everyone has opinions. They can see what's wrong, but they have opinions. For example, I met a guy, uh, Fergus Connolly, who's a uh, performance... He, the guy who worked at the Dubs, you might, you might have yeah, heard him. Yeah. And, uh, he said they looked in an overtrained state. He was thinking, well, maybe they're a little bit overtrained and they, they, that's what's contributing to it. But actually, I just think when you focus on one area and you just expect another one to pick itself up, sometimes that doesn't happen. And Joe uh, Plumtree, all these guys coming in, have their hands full trying to get the technical aspects of the game correct, trying to get the players. Obviously, they have problems with selection, problems with injuries. So they, they probably didn't focus on the... Uh, on the on the mental aspects of you know desire and so on going into the game and underestimated the Australian team a slight bit given the fact that Australia as I said already have are hardened to the season this is a new Irish team who haven't really put together many games and then identifying where we really are in the world of rugby I mean I'm going to ask you a question what's acceptable for an Irish team in in terms of like where should they be and where do they deserve to be in rugby I'm, I'm talking what's acceptable in your mind as in in world where, rankings yeah where uh, should they be I mean what's acceptable like I hear people talking about Irish rugby teams well we should be doing this we should be doing that and we're not here and we're not there expectation from what I've seen over the last couple of years hasn't uh, hasn't been reached but so I don't think I'm, expecting to mm. beat Australia mm. at home is a massive overreach or I didn't think so until no, the other day not, we've no, beaten them quite a lot but recently. I'm asking you what's, what's acceptable so the team I'm working backwards here mm. so what, what you need to work what, set what your goals are and then work backwards what's to what acceptable the team is needs to do. Yeah. challenging for yeah. Six Nations title yeah okay. and a beating, beating, beating one or two, well, certainly beating Australia at home where possible, and competing away against those teams. Yeah, well, I, I'd say uh, my argument there would be that we should try to be the best team, and you know, being the best team in the world is slightly far fetched. But I'm saying though, you have to be aiming to do, for though and set your standards at that level to even compete with the All Blacks because that's where they're at. I mean, someone said to me recently that there was a, a secret camera went into the All Blacks change room and there was something picked up on a, on a whiteboard where it said we're the most dominant team in the world. That's they're acutely aware of where they are among themselves, and they and that's where they set their standards. So you can never, ever, ever compete with that if you don't think along those lines. We can't think, well, it's acceptable to... And I think it's, that, is a, that is a mentality that is fed back down from the union in the sense that they're looking at balance sheets more so than actual performances on the, uh, on the, on the rugby field, and that affects the overall concept. We don't, we, we're judged as a team and a coach and, and people coaching, but the whole setup is not judged, and it isn't reaching the, the, the expectations that we expect. Now, 
I'm shooting off here like on a mad tangent, but that's that's the reality. And and I mean, you need to work from those principles before you can actually. Solve so expectations aren't high enough, is what you're saying? Yeah, Emma, I, listen. I think there's. I understand it's a laudable thing that you're saying there, but also the steps along that path, right? The steps along that path. And I think there was probably occasions in the not too distant past for Ireland that they were, you know, um, looking to achieve that. They were looking to be the best team in the world. Now, you have to have to be realistic as well. And, you know, that aspiration is is based on, you know, a number of steps. I don't think you go from, I think we're about seven or eight in the world to go, actually, we're going to be first in the world. You go, actually, let's kind of step up the ladder and up the ladder. And then you get to a certain place where it looks realistic and it's a, it is an option. You go, yes, okay, we're going to be, we are now really going for, um, for for the number one in the world. But at the moment, realistically, we're a bit off that. So you put the stepping stones in place to reach that. And um, I think that's, you know, I'm sure that's what, what the team, that's what Joe is going to try and do. But right now, to say from the position they're in, we are, you know, we're, we want to be the best team in the world yet. At some stage in the road, there's a lot of uh, gaps in between. Um, But just to get back onto you know the desire thing, uh, you know I'm sure desire wasn't an issue going out onto the field for for Ireland. I don't think it was an issue. but it can sometimes just ebb away, you know, the enthusiasm and actually um, the not the desire, but you're, 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 you feel as if you're banging your head up against a brick wall sometimes. And you could see that when that ball was being slowed down and or Ireland were trying back moves that weren't coming off, they're getting knocked behind the gain line. You know, it's slowly that um, the the concentration ebbs away, the the um, the belief ebbs away that you can actually do anything. And then it lo- all of a sudden it looks very bad. Ireland continue to try things. Uh, so from that from that uh, perspective, there was a desire there. They tried to continue to try and do things, but they just didn't do them very well. And then it was almost like every bit of any bit of enthusiasm was, was sucked out of them. And you saw that, you know, when Ireland are playing best, they're you know slapping each other on the arses, they're pulling each other up, they're pushing the opposition down. And as, as Ronan said, you know, they're they're jumping in at the if they're the, the first sign of trouble. Now that just evaporates over the course of a game where you're just battered into submission. I think that's what happened, Jerry. The uh, another theory is that we were essentially undercooked only our second game, particularly under a new coach, and Australia are coming in more battle hardened. I'm, I'm never sure about that argument because it seems like people can make that fit whatever purpose they want to. If you see New Zealand getting beaten by England this time last year, and people said, "Oh, they're, they're at the end of a hard season," is it is that just a, a fact of life that the way the rugby calendar is, it's hard to actually get two teams at the same point of their graph to play against each other? Yeah, I think it's it's uh, it's an argument that can be used either way, whatever way the results go to fit you. Um, I think like it, it, it's, there's no real point focusing on that because if you look at like Australia come from a, a, pr- a pretty tough season, you know, coming in, and you, the reason that people were disappointed is because the expectation was that Ireland were going to win this game. I think that's a good that's a good thing. I I take what Emmett's saying, and you've got to have a vision that underpins everything you're doing when you're when you're approaching, uh, you know. What, where you want the team to go, and if that vision is we want to be the best team in the world, that's got to that's got to that's got to permeate down through everything. So if you're looking at the facility you're using, is this a facility that the best team in the world would use? If it's not, then it's not good enough. You, but and and again, I'm not trying to agree with everyone. What Shane is right is that you've got to take steps, but there's got to be an ultimate goal there. And I think I think you are if you have, have met, and, that, and that's what they're trying to do. Um, I think going into this game at the weekend. The reason it was so disappointing is because you know we expected to beat that Australian team, and, and, and we were we were plenty good enough to beat them, but we just massively under. Were we though, Jerry? Did, did, did it not expose that maybe the players? If you look at the players that Declan Kidney took over and the stage of their careers that they were at, does this current crop of players actually compare? Are they even at that level? I think they, I think they have within them. Yeah, I think I, I believe that we will win the game, and not 
I didn't believe that we'd win the game because I thought Australia were poor. Australia had do some things very, very well. When I looked at the game and I looked at how how we how we performed, I said, well, geez, we didn't really do any any one specific part of our game worked really, really well. It didn't, and that was what was so disappointing. I think there's a balance you've got to get when you're going into a test match, and it's got to be between having the detail on the game and having the physicality. The detail is like from from speaking to any lads that worked with Joe Joe Smith before they spoke about he's massive on detail, which is so important. But then you've got to park that. Come come Wednesday of a test match week, you've got to park that. You've got to park all the detail, have it stored away, and then go out and just be physical. Just trust that you've got it, that the game plan, everything that you're supposed to do, you're in the right place, and you just go out there and play as hard as you can. Because the minute players are playing at like five percent below where they should be, if they're thinking, well, where should I be in the field here? They're not playing 100% physical, and and I think that, that that's something that that looked like it was it was coming through the Irish game. You know, I think our D looked poor. I think. Um, there were some bad decisions made in D. Um, I think that whenever Australia threatened us in the middle of the field, and D is something we're normally we're normally quite strong on. Liz Kitts has, you know, always been very consistent there, and I think they'll be disappointed. I think when when you look at like whenever Australia sent a couple of forwards up the middle of the field, they sent Horwell up there for for the first try, and I think Fardy hit Horwell, and I think Mike Ross shot out of the line then, and uh, on an inside hit him on the inside shoulder. He got the offload to Cooper, and then you know some 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 good play by. Uh, by Cooper and by Moore, and they finished the first try. The second try with a uh, with Hooper was 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 uh, a spot ball in, in from Moore back to Cooper again. You know, in midfield, just sending in a couple of players, and we probably bit a little bit too hard in the middle of the field on those on those forward runners, and that put us in pressure, put us under pressure out wide. We're going very laterally, so these are all things that Ireland are good at generally, and they were poor at the weekend. Now, you know, if we were going into you know. A, a, a reasonable, a reasonable team at the weekend. I'd be very hopeful if they can get these things right. And very, very frustrating for the players when, when you go out and you know, you know why you've made a mistake. You know you don't normally make that mistake. We're up against the best team in the world this weekend. So you know, ideally going into the ideal prep is that you know things go work well for you and, and you try and build on that rather than going backwards to try and go forward. Yeah, Shane, the defence was particularly interesting because as Jerry says, Les Kiss is the one bit of continuity there between the coaching teams, and that's maybe why it was somewhat surprising do you look in a situation like that do you look at the defence coach and ask is he doing the right things or did it seem clear to you that what the players were doing on the pitch whatever they ended up doing probably wasn't what they were programmed to do yeah there's a couple of things there's individual errors and then there's system errors and um, you know they can both be looked at in isolation I think what you had at the weekend was you had um, a little from column A and a little from column B you had players making poor decisions making poor reads you also had um, players just missing tackles missing first up tackles and not um, dominating the tackle area there was certainly a lot of and we saw it against uh, Samoa as well a lot of the falling that was going over as a tackler would fall he'd fall over the gain line and if you do that you're giving the opposition momentum it allows them fastball it allows them front football and then the next phase and the subsequent phases after that are, are increasingly hard to, to defend so you know you had individual areas but I think as well there's something been going on with Ireland for the last while I think that their system is a little too soft um, it allows for a very controlled structure it allows uh, the opposition have the ball for a little bit too long 
and it says, all right, you come and break us down now. We're not going to commit too much to a ruck. We're going to come up. We're going to be soft. We're going to push you to the sideline. You know, occasionally, yeah, they'll try and up their line speed, but I haven't seen it very much with Ireland. I have to say, I think their line speed has been has been lacking, and it's allowed teams to to attack soft inside shoulders, and it's allowed teams to really try and get a break on the outside and not have a, a two man tackle. And I think it, it, it's it, it is of concern because. Um, the size of the Australian backline, I really think, had a problem for us. And if you look around the world at the moment, all of the teams have got huge backlines. Uh, never mind the forwards. They're going to be getting over the gain line unless you increase your line speed and match them um, with uh, with physicality. If you're a little bit soft on them, as the defensive system is at the moment, then it gives them a great opportunity to get over the, line, the gain line. And as I said, that increases the speed of, of the next rook and subsequent rooks after that. Yeah, it's a, it's a positive cycle. Uh, from the attacking team's point of view and I couldn't agree more the uh, the line speed they were valuing line integrity over line speed in the game so you know in terms of like sometimes you come up with a lot of uh, I suppose uh, aggression and stuff you can leave possible gaps and stuff but they were focusing on just keeping the line intact but it, the Wallabies had so much time on the ball that and they know how to use the ball So one, and their present ball presentation like the contact is very very Why would Ireland do that Emma? because this is a conversation that I've had with you before and I, actually I think with Shane also uh, it, 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 I remember that happening in a home game against Wales a couple of years ago it, it, almost the exact same the, thing the, 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 the highly the organised attacks the, you play against teams that have a very blunt attack like say South Africa for example which bludgeon in versus someone like New Zealand they're going to see you'll see next week and Australia and they're very very good at, at uh, using the, like at the running game and you have to like one of the big things you don't want to get to is broken in the middle of the field because then you go into the scramble defence situation and that's a nightmare against teams like that because their their turnovers are so quick so really you're you're better off mate. like a lot of the time it's a trade off you know of kind of making sure that they don't break the line 100% guaranteed the problem was the other day they just gave them too much time to get out beyond that outside man and out wide and then they were devastating in the outside channels and that's really we that was again that that led to things like missed tackles, soft half tackles, with letting offloads go off. And then they come, and that's what I'm saying, they're very good at this running game. They come at angles left and right. You'll see a lot of the time, if you look at them very closely, they'll have guys that overrun the ball loads of times that you don't even notice in the game. It's only when he gets the ball that you actually notice. So they're offering these runners all the time. The Wallabies have credit where credit's due. When they're you know outside of their front five, their back row and their back line are excellent. And the way they run the, uh, the game is they're always offering something. They're thinking, they have the mentality of what am I doing? What should I be thinking? What am I thinking? This sort of stuff. So when they're off the ball, they're actually moving all the time. Uh, and that gives the ball runners the likes of Quade Cooper, who, unlike O'Connor, knows how to use those guys, uh, options all the time, and, and Genie and so on. So it, they become a genuine threat, and we didn't deal with that well. All right, looking ahead to mm. the New Zealand game, guys. Uh, Shane, I'll ask you first of all, uh, I mean, normally we'd ask, particularly in a case like this, about personnel changes, and I guess that's it's fair enough whether or not we need to change it up a little bit. But is in a way, is that almost irrelevant? Is it more about just getting some of these other elements right, getting the attitude right and getting the system right and whatever players are actually out on the field? Yeah, I suppose there is. Uh, it depends on injuries is, is, is a huge issue. But as you said, it's going to be a, a change of attitude. Uh, it's going to be the first and foremost what, what's needed. And you're not going to be able to bring in enough players to you know completely change an attitude off their backs. You actually have to look at the players and the very good players that are there in the team and were picked for the weekend and didn't perform as well as they like. And they're the ones that are going to generate it. So it's not going to be about... I, I don't think there's a, there's not a whole host of players waiting on the sideline going, put, you know, raising their hands um, saying that I should be in the squad, especially with the amount of the injuries that are, that are out there. Yeah, there are one or two that could come in and 
and, and may make a difference. But you've got to look to the core of um, the team that was there at the weekend to change uh, to change the attitude, to actually bring to to recreate the enthusiasm that should be there, and to try and compete against this team. And and I think you know Jerry hit the nail on the head. You know there has been a lot of talk and maybe an overemphasis on um, on technically what Ireland should be doing, and it did look as if the, that that uh, physicality suffered a little bit as a result. Now you need to marry the both of them. One isn't enough, you know, and whether that be perfectly technically or perfectly, um, um, you know, have a perfect physical game, one of those is enough. You have to marry them, the both of them. Um, now we didn't do that at the weekend. The All Blacks will certainly need to do it because um, we will be really struggling for even mental possession. We'll, we'll get against those guys, so you've got to, they've got to absolutely tear into them. But I don't think it's necessarily because it's not going to be done by a whole host of new players uh, being brought into the squad. It's going to be done by the the core of the guys that are there. Jerry, my fear would be that nobody really believes, well certainly the public don't really believe that Ireland are going to beat New Zealand even in the best of times and it's been a difficult week. Would you share my concern about um, what might happen against New Zealand this weekend? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, uh, for me previously I've always kind of I've always kind of been a bit jealous whenever I've had, seen an Irish team when I was to play in New Zealand because I always thought like, no matter how bad things have been before, this is always a chance to do something that no Irish team has ever done before, done. Unfortunately, I can't see it happening this weekend. I, I agree with Shane. It's not like that we've got injuries are probably the most pressing thing coming into this weekend. It isn't the players that you can introduce and say, this guy would radically change the game for us because as, as, a, as, as, a, you know, as a squad, they underperformed at the weekend. Um, if Madigan comes in or Jackson comes in at 10, it's going to be interesting to see how they manage the game there. But um, there's, I think the most important thing that Ireland have to get right coming in now is, 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 their, is their attitude going straight in and just... To, to compete with them physically because like Shane said we've got to make our decisions we've got to make some smart decisions now in, in D if New Zealand are going to test in the middle of the field as well and if Ireland don't make their mind up if they don't go down line speed and cut those plays off from the middle and from the outside in because you can't you can't have a, a disjointed uh, D line I think the D things are going to be really important but controlling all the stuff the, the variables that, that Ireland have within their control so better execution uh, bringing more physicality but I'm afraid I can't see a win at the moment for Ireland. Emmett, we'll leave it to you to predict a famous Irish victory. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Owen. I, uh, no, I, I actually, I think there are, uh, there's huge room for improvement from last week. There's, there's a f- the things you can change from last week, okay, we already mentioned desire. That's something that will be flipped on its head. I've no doubt in my mind the Irish team will bring a level of physicality that wasn't seen last week. The scrum can be, there's huge areas in the scrum. It was very sloppy last week, and I know they're not, the guys are good, so I, I, they'll tighten up that area for sure. Uh, defensively, they'll definitely be better. The, the, the one area that concerns me the most is, the, is that we, we are, I think the Wallabies were, uh, were down like to 14 for well over 10 minutes in that game last week, and we didn't manage to manufacture a try. The attack is always going to be the hardest thing. If you can't apply pressure from an attacking point of view on a team, they can relax and defend you, and then they can throw everything at you in attack, which is what New Zealand will do if we don't put pressure on them in attack. But there's two ways that uh, Joe can approach this game from the biggest context, if you like, and this is all he can do within the space of a week because... Uh, tweaking things now is it's too late for that against a team that have such attention to detail like New Zealand so he can either approach it with like we've already mentioned you know f- still sticking to the whole trying to develop the the, the 
technical aspects of the game and focus on those areas and risk an absolute hiding or he can go out and just focus on the physicality of the game which is something like maybe we could imagine what Munster did when they put their second string out against New Zealand a couple of years ago and literally just caught them completely by surprise you have a better chance of upsetting them doing that but you're not developing the team so it's a bit of a touch and go they're not going to win this weekend but I mean I, I do expect a better performance and let's just hope New Zealand players don't go in a bonding session tonight if anybody sees any All Blacks around Dublin just send them, send home. them home we don't need God's them to sake. get any, any more team spirit going listen Jerry Flannery, Shane Horgan, Emma Byrne, thanks a million to three. Thanks. Cheers. All right, that's, that's good manners. A number of players have played, but they're still in the squad. I wonder, did you speak to any of them before deciding to accept the job? No, absolutely not. No, 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 obviously none of their business, you know, what I was going to do. It's a ridiculous question. <laughs> and we want to win football matches. There's nothing to tame, you know, not some sort of animal, you know what I mean? I'm, you obviously don't know Martin as well as you think you do. He makes me look like what a Teresa. You know, he's, um, I don't know. And we want to win football matches. We've had a lovely few days. The hotel's been lovely. The food's been excellent. Training ground is lovely. No potholes. Uh, we've had footballs. It's been great. Bibs, everything. It's been major progress. And we want to win football matches. I know we've been focusing a lot on the downsides of the Irish performance, which is only natural, but I should stress how exciting it is to watch players like Falau and Cooper, particularly in the flesh. You go to, to be honest, part of the reason I really wanted to go through the Australia game was I was thinking, I started to feel guilty about how few opportunities are going to be to see Brian O'Driscoll mm. wearing the Irish jersey. So that's half the reason we're going along, hoping he'll do something special. And unfortunately, uh, it didn't happen for him. But you do, you have to take your hat off to guys like Cooper and Flet. Absolute freaks in different ways. They're both freakishly talented and just can do things that nobody else mm. in world rugby probably can do. So it's it's worth mentioning that. It's also, just to take up one of the things we're talking about there, I think the, the level of this group of players isn't at the level, I don't think, of... 2008, when Declan Kidney took over, you had a team who'd been knocking on the door internationally for a number of years. Okay, they had a bad year that year. Probably Eddie O'Sullivan was, mm. had, had, that year had gone on maybe a little bit too long at that point and was dying off a little bit. But that was, if you think about it, 2008 was the year that Munster won their second Heineken Cup. Then 2009, Leinster won their Heineken Cup. So you're in between those two periods. Players probably at the peak of their powers near enough, uh, one or two, uh, probably actually, yeah, I would say most of those the, the big names in Irish rugby, some of the biggest we've ever had in professional rugby, at the peak of their powers together. I don't think we have that this time. Maybe I know we don't want to panic too much about one result, but that might have started to become clearer with the with the match. I'm just worried about what's going to happen against New Zealand, Murph. That's all. Yeah, I think we all are. But I think someone did actually make the point that, and it was to say in a positive way that the team hasn't really changed a whole lot since the Grand Slam, and that as a result. You know, they, they, oh, it they, has. They, Personally, they, have changed quite a lot. Well, there uh, there actually weren't as many changes as perhaps people might have thought over the course of five years from mm. the the team that won the Grand Slam to the team said that's available now, and that's that's a you know people are saying that as if it's a good thing, but really when you think about it, you do need you know a significant influx of 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 new names on top of that. I just have be. a seriously bad feeling, Murph, that we're going to be hearing a lot of Eiffel sixty five mm. at the Aviva Stadium on Sunday. To imagine to hear it. Eight or nine times. This is just the, I was saying, yeah, 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 eight or nine blue dabby dabbies, and that's without even counting spear tackles. Yeah, I know. What's I know. Go on yeah, there? I, that's I, I, Let's check in with Ken Early in Poznan. Ken, how are you? Very good, owner, and yourself? Not too bad at all. Not too bad. I know you were quite taken by the uh, when I explained a little bit about the sound effects, particularly the heartbeat that's played during the uh, international rugby matches. Yeah. Well, although I just think I think that the sort of um, repertoire 
from which these uh, sound effects are chosen is very limited. I mean, why is all the music from the last 20, 20 or 30 years? Why do, why do we never go back a little bit further? What would you be looking for? Well, I think that the... Um, and, and I also don't understand why it always seems to be only at breaks in play that you play this music. Why not play it during the actual match itself as a soundtrack to the match? And it would be more like... For the players, it would be more like being in a really cool movie. Yeah, some 1920s-style gramophone music going on with that tinny kind of sound, right the way, really loud, right or the way through the match. George Gershwin or something, yeah. you know? Or you play, uh, play unti- like, sort of silly-sounding ragtime when, when Australia were trying to put together an attack. <laughs> when Ireland were, um, were you know, uh, building towards a try putting together phase after phase, uh, inch after inch, closer to that line, maybe a little bit of um, Wagner... You know, the, the prelude to Tristan and Isolde. You know, you know what yeah. I'm talking about? Or the, uh, the, the Benny Hill theme tune. Well, again, I, there might be a bit of bathos to that, which, which wouldn't be in keeping with the uh, muscular urges of yeah. the always, uh, puts of me in good, always puts me in, good, in a good mood, though, Ken. Yeah, that, that's true. Well, maybe, maybe, you know, you can always... There, there, are, there are times, I mean, there's obviously moments of levity in any game. You know, there are serious moments and there are moments when people can just... Have a bit of a laugh and remember that at the end of the day, it's just sport. We have an email in from Joe Herson here. Gentlemen, I'd like to hear your thoughts on the softening attitudes to Lance Armstrong that appear to be becoming more prevalent. I've seen some comment in various places about how Lance was as exploited as exploitative. That was from Jeremy Whittle. And that he'd only a minor part in the most sophisticated doping program this sport has ever seen. Sure, it is right to go after Verbrugge and McQuaid, etc. But the bitification of Lance Armstrong and this pursuit is surely many steps too far. Maybe Lance's latest PR drive is actually being believed. Thanks, that's from Joe. I understand the point, Joe. It, there maybe has been... I think because it was so much... People who, for many years, had backed Lance Armstrong um, in a fairly lazy way in certain cases, decided that when he... They do. They'd just be lazy going the other way as well, and maybe jump on top of him. But I don't think I'm not sure necessarily that I 100 percent agree with you that people like Jeremy Whittle are being too soft. I mean, Whittle, you have to understand, wrote one of the best books on this subject. I know everyone talks about David Walsh's books, which are very good, but Jeremy Whittle wrote a, a piece, "Bad Blood: The Secret." Uh, I think it was a secret life or the secret history of the Tour de France, in which he outlined some of what was going on with Verbruggen and uh, and Lance and the sort of the possible complicity of the UCI in it. So he was doing that many years before, and I think it would frustrate him if this just ended at Lance and didn't go any further. So I think that's probably fair enough. But the the overall, um, the meeting was kind of weird. That piece, I, I quite enjoyed it. And, and, and some the Daily new, Mail. Yeah some, new, sorry, yeah, some new information came out. Emma O'Reilly w- w- was asked by Lance Armstrong, Lance Armstrong wanted to apologise to her. Eventually, she decides she'll go over and meet him in America, but she wants to take a journalist with him to put a lot of it on the record. They go and talk off the record as well. She wanted some some sort of, I don't know, I guess professional company in um, in the chat with Lance Armstrong because I can say sometimes you might have a chat with Lance Armstrong. He might take something different out of it than you're taking out of it. So it's a strange kind of, a somewhat strange scenario, but he did give a bit of information that he hasn't given before, talking about Verbruggen, the former UCI president. This was the most hyped part of it where he says that Essentially, Verbruggen was the one who advised him to sort out the positive test in '99 uh, with the cortisone test, and then they came up with the backdated prescription. Interesting, it was something about the pre-cancer years, and he said, "What I did to win the tour between '99 and '05 was this much, and in '96 it was this much." He adds, widening his arms, which goes to show that he was doing. Uh, he he reckons more stuff in '96 than he was in '99, which validates the uh, Betsy Andreu and Frankie Andreu. 
point that they said that they were in this hospital room where they heard because that's yeah. one thing he hasn't admitted to actually saying what he said in the hospital room about doing this cocktail of drugs coming up to uh, in the pre-cancer years and Michele Ferrari this is what I found very interesting right, this is key to understanding Armstrong he absolutely loves Ferrari and he hasn't stopped loving him yeah. over the years the video clip that uh, is attached to the, the the Daily Mail article is very instructive he's in talking about how smart area. Michele Ferrari is and how he told him to stop using EPO in 2000 Lo and behold, they're tested for EPO and nothing comes up because Ferrari's such a genius, essentially. Armstrong is saying this and his eyes are yeah. just, there's, there's vitality there. He's loving recounting these it, tales of how it great It actually Ferrari is. really reminds me of some Leinster player being interviewed after the Amlin final last year, telling, us about, telling the press about the three moves that Joe Schmidt said, if you run the three moves, uh, we'll get three tries, we'll win the game. And it was that sort of, my God, the guy in charge of my career just knows so much about how, what it takes for me to get to the very top. That exact same yeah. look that that Leinster player had <laughs> is what Lance Armstrong had uh, in his eyes when talking about Michele Ferrari. What did you make of the piece, uh, Ken? Video. Yeah, I, well, I, just on what you were saying there, I think Armstrong has always had that. He, he's always had a kind of um, fascination with the science of what he's doing. I mean, I remember an interview he did ages ago with Bob Schieffer. You know Bob Schieffer? He's one of those American news anchors. I mean, this is obviously in the days when he was still a you know, hero and, and didn't admit taking drugs. But at one point, Schieffer uh, kind of brings up this doping thing. You know, we've heard this sort of thing goes on in the sport. And Armstrong is talking about uh, how, oh, you know, he, he actually becomes really animated talking about the history of doping in sport. Oh, it was happening at the ancient Olympics. Oh, yeah. You know, the, the ancient Olympics, they were doping, uh, you know. And she was like, really? What kind of things are they taking then? And, and Armstrong seems kind of, he's, he's like, I don't know, cocaine? Which seems pretty unlikely, just geographically uh, speaking, that, that the, in ancient Greece, uh, <laughs> they were taking cocaine in the, in the Olympics. But you could see sort of how interested he was in the subject. You know, he's, it's something that just sort of fascinates him. Um, and it's no surprise really to see him, to see the kind of respect that he has for Michele Ferrari. Because that was really, that's what he spent his life doing, winning this sort of, chemical science sort of his, his, his career was a scientific project you know and, and he's, he, he he wouldn't have been able to do it without really loving it enough on that Ken what about tonight we already I should mention that we have this show out I flagged it at the top but we have got second captains football we put it out late last night after the Irish press conference at that stage there didn't there didn't seem to be a huge amount of, uh, of an Irish invasion I don't know if many more Irish fans have arrived over overnight but how, how are the excitement levels over there uh, well, I've seen a few Irish fans going around the, the town all right today. Not, uh, obviously, it's, I mean, the the standard for uh, Irish, uh, the sort of Irish invasion levels in Poznan is the bar has been set pretty high. <laughs> so really doesn't look as though there's any Ireland fans here, even though there are, there are clearly uh, quite a few. But yeah, I mean, um, I guess people are, people are interested to see what's going to happen tonight, whether um, we can play as well against uh, a real football team as we did against Latvia. Is that what we're looking for? Is it, is it simply, just, at this stage, are we demanding victories or do we just want to see some nice football being played and ideally not get beaten? Well, victory would be nice. Um, I think Poland are in a pretty bad situation at the moment. I think they also have a new manager. They lost their, they lost, um, you know, his first match on Friday. Uh, they played really badly. They're getting criticised by their media. You know, it's not as though they're a really happy, more confident outfit, despite the fact that they do have some good individual players. So um, I think it would be it would be very interesting if Ireland. I mean, history tells you Ireland aren't going to win. We don't go and we don't beat half decent teams away from home. It just doesn't happen. 
um, which is why if it did happen, it would be so uh, remarkable. Yeah, I, I, one thing I'm looking out for is who, well, the structure of the team, but more importantly, who he plays up front and how those front players look because Robbie Keane, uh, it seems like he has cemented his place in Mar- Martin O'Neill's affections by um, by coming over injured, essentially, or ready for an operation and delaying that operation. So we know now that there's a bond there and Keane has said himself he's not retiring anytime soon. The question might arise, will he need to be dropped at some point? And if so, who comes in? What's going to happen there tonight, do you think? Well, I think what's going to happen tonight is uh, is uh, Shane Long and Anthony Stokes. I think that's what it's going to be up front. Um, Straightforward two-man partnership? Yeah, I think so. Well, I suppose as long as they're centre forward and Stokes as the, you know, try and make something happen between the lines guy. Um, and I think um, uh, we're, we're going to see Paul Green and uh, McCarthy in midfield. I'm not... I'm not sure. This is just based on a little bit of information from the training. It doesn't necessarily mean that this is going to be the team, but uh, I wouldn't be entirely surprised if it was Long and Stokes. All right, Ken, great stuff. Listen, enjoy the game. Uh, we're going to crack on here, Murph, by talking about the retirement of one of the world's great sports people, Sachin Tendulkar. I guess Roy Keane's level of fame here, you could take that, mm. multiply it by a factor of 50. Take out all of the sort of controversy and conflict that Roy Keane means to Irish people. I mean, basically... You're, it's much closer to David Beckham uh, with kind of Lionel Messi's level of actual achievement on the field. This so, is in India, how he's, yeah. he's viewed in India, he's recently retired. Yeah, retired and, last I, week. and if you look at David Be- at the height of David Beckham's fame, maybe around the 2002 World Cup, uh, or a couple of years directly after that, that would have been around Tendulkar's peak as well. He was earning more in endorsements in India than David Beckham was earning around the world. So Tendulkar's fame is all-encompassing and... Yeah, I mean, just absolutely astonishing for a sports person. I mean, we we are talking about the world's biggest democracy, so you know it's a pretty big market. But uh, to be to, uh, to be to reach Tendulkar's level of fame in, as I say, the world's biggest democracy, democracy, it takes a, a degree of doing. We're joined by Tunku Varadarajan, who's a former editor of Newsweek, now works with the Daily Beast. And we are speaking to Tunku because he wrote a brilliant op-ed piece last Wednesday, I think it was, in the New York Times. And uh, Tunku's ready to talk. Tunku, Sachin, he has played his last game in India, um, his last game for India, I should say. You said in this piece that I referenced there that he's the most revered Indian since Mahatma Gandhi held the nation in thrall. That sounds like a big statement. Yeah, I think, you know, even allowing for a touch of um, newspaper op-ed hyperbole, um, that is actually not far from the truth. I would say, you know, it, it suggests two things. It suggests that Sachin really touched some terrifically great heights uh, in the Indian consciousness. And also, uh, if I can be mischief, mischievous enough to say this, it suggests that India hasn't really had many, very many heroes since Mahatma Gandhi. The fact that it was uh, a sports person, I mean, this wouldn't happen necessarily in any other sport in India. I don't know if you, even if you became the greatest gymnast in the world or whatever it might be, there's something about cricket in that country, it's fair to say, that would elevate someone like Sachin Tendulkar to this almost mythical status. Yeah, you know, cricket cricket is a religion in India. That's that's fair to acknowledge. Uh, the, the, the sport that comes closest to cricket in terms of popular following is football. Uh, but India is ranked something like 166 in the FIFA ranking. So uh, it's fair to say that no Indian footballer comes remotely close to Tendulkar. But cricket has, uh, it, wasn't, it, it wasn't always this way. You know, for the first couple of decades after independence in 1947, cricket, while popular, was never this fervently followed. But 
it soon became apparent to India that cricket was the one thing, apart from Bollywood, the cinema industry, that allowed the average Indian person to escape from the sort of grim, grimness around him. So cricket really had a, had a rather positive role in the Indian imagination. It, it allowed Indians to dream. It allowed them to, to get away, to escape. And um, after a while, when Indians actually started to win at cricket, it became a, a sport in which Indians um, could begin to sort of think think grand things about themselves. So, yeah, cricket, cricket alongside the Hindu religion in India is, is, the, most, is the thing that most people are most passionate about. Uh, interesting to hear you talk about the the growth of cricket, but they were st- and throughout the the sixties and seventies. But they were still waiting for the global superstar that 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 Indian cricket had never really produced until until Sachin came along. Exactly, you know, India's always had uh, plenty of good to great cricketers, but it's never had a world beater in the way that Sachin was a world beater, a, a cricketer who Indians could point to and say. This man indisputably is the best in the world at what he does, uh, and Sachin came along, and so that the, the the impact of that was not just cricketing; it it it, it was a tremendous boost to the self image of a country which really lacked world beaters. That that has a bit of an inf- had until recently, until the economic reforms made India a, a major player on the world stage, um, a bit of an inferiority complex. It, you know, it was. It was it was a nice country. It was a country that people kind of nodded at politely, but it was not a country that beat anyone at anything until Sachin came along and uh, started to be regarded with awe by people who weren't just Indian, by people in Australia, in England, in the West Indies, in Pakistan, and I dare say in Ireland. Tunky, you made the point that maybe there haven't been that many heroes for people to get behind in India over the years, but those people who have been hugely popular in the country, how do... Generally speaking, do Indian people like their their famous, their celebrities, their sporting superstars? Do they like them to be a little bit brash and put out this confident image, or do they like the image of the humble, hard worker, team player kind of guy? Well, until until recently, uh, Indians uh, have liked them to be uh, accessible. Uh, not that they were literally ever going to be accessible, because once you attain fame in India, the best thing to do is to kind of climb up on your ivory tower to escape the masses. But They've at least liked in their heroes the illusion or the image of humility, of modesty, of accessibility, of somebody who made good from modest origins. You know, that's the kind of universal rags to riches or sort of modest clothes to riches story that Indians loved. Um, That's changed a bit. I think Tendulkar is going to be very much the last modest hero of India. Indians now like things brash and they like their heroes brash too. You know, Tendulkar's successor as a sort of batting superstar in the Indian lineup is a man called Virat Kohli. I don't know if you've heard of him in Ireland. Yeah. But yep. yeah, I mean he's a tremendously success he's arguably the best one one day international batsman in the world today. And and he is the um exact opposite of Sanchin Tendulkar in terms of modesty and humility. He's a brash young man who who gives crowds the bird and who, you know, thumps his chest when he hits a six, when he hits a six and scores a century and does all the things that Tendulkar never ever did, never ever did in, in his 24 years as a cricketer. And, but Indians don't mind that because Indians have changed and they've expect, they expect their heroes to change too. Yeah, and it's interesting that Tendulkar started in 1989, uh, which is a scarcely believable figure when you think about it, that he played his first Test match uh, at 16 in 1989 and that his career has basically spanned that entire change that you're talking about in Indian self-image from basically an economic, a huge... Um, 
economic uh, nadir, effectively, as you described in, in your New York Times piece uh, at the start of the 1990s, right through to where it is now, to it being probably the second biggest or second fastest growing economy in the world. Exactly. Um, you know, I think uh, that's precisely right. The 24 years Tendulkar has played cricket have been 20, 24 years of enormous change in India, uh, economic change, and, and with it, uh, all the other sorts of change that come with it, you know, changes in foreign policy, changes in culture, changes in uh, relations with other cultures, uh, an increasing kind of self-confidence in, in Indian culture itself in its relation with other cultures. Um, so everything about India in the last 24 years has changed. Um, you know, I myself was, uh, you know, 27 years old when uh, Sachin made his debut, and uh, the India that existed then is an India that is, to me today, unrecognizable now. And I think, um, you know, so Sachin has actually in many ways been a yardstick against which so much in India is measured, not just cricketing things, but politically, culturally, socially. Um, and so, yeah, th- so Sachin's retirement is in many ways the end of an era uh, that isn't just sporting. And so that his real significance lies in the fact that Indians now sense that a new chapter is beginning. A, a new chapter, you know, in all sorts of facets of life is beginning with the departure of Tendulkar. Has Tendulkar himself changed over the years? Because I find it hard to believe... Or- Hard to comprehend how somebody could remain as humble as that, remain unchanged as they go from being just an, another person at 17, 16, 17 years of age, uh, another uh, normal Indian man to being this absolute megastar. Oh, in the last few years of his career, did, did he start changing personality at all? Yeah, you know, I think um, he has changed, of course. You know, he's no longer that um, uninhibited boy with a mop of hair that he was when he made his test debut in 1989 at the age of 16. He's now 40 years old. He's got children. He's married. He's He can't step out of his house without being mobbed. He has to, if he wants to drive one of, it, one of his fav, favorite cars and there are things like Maseratis and Lamborghinis, if I'm not mistaken, he's got to do it at the dead of night, 3 a.m. on empty Mumbai streets. So, so as to avoid public recognition and uh, so as to avoid, uh, you know, being stopped and mobbed. So he can't go to the cinema. He can't go to a restaurant. So these are these are things that must change a man, and I think they've turned him even into an even more inward-looking person than he might otherwise have been. Um, I I like to think that retirement will liberate him, will allow him to be more of a kind of ordinary human being in the sense of being able to do things in public um, uh, than than he than he was when he was a cricketer. But I doubt it. I think that the reverence for him is never going to end. Then the Oka has acknowledge that and is, is resigned. It was a trade-off. It was a grand bargain he made, uh, you know, for, for, for fame and cricketing distinction and reverence. He got an inability to be anything other than an intensely private person. And he's going to have to continue to be that or else he will go mad. Can I just uh, ask you about how, uh, and Kieran talks about the economic growth in the last 10 or 15 years in India, but of course, the poverty is still a massive issue. I'm just wondering how did the really, the poorer people of a country with such economic disparity, how do they feel about a wealthy superstar such as Sindhagar? Well, I'm, I can only imagine that they uh, derive some kind of escapist, vicarious pleasure from him and his presence and his performance the way they do from, uh, you know, equally fabulously wealthy and inaccessible film stars. So, you know, I, th- I don't think, um, you know, with ten- I don't think Indians are ever envious of their heroes. I think in this particular, there's a nature of heroism in sport that, allows for people to, to be purely admiring. And it doesn't matter whether you're as rich as Tendulkar or as poor as the poorest Indian 
you admire him and you, 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 your relationship with the man in question is a purely, uh, is one of, uh, is, is a spectator's relationship. It's, it's an adulator's relationship. So I think uh, if your question is how hard is it to be poor and a fan of Tendulkar, I'm, I'm, I'm prepared to say that it's rather easy to be poor and a fan of Tendulkar because the cricket, the cricket is the cricket and um, the poverty is unchanged by it. But he enhances the pleasure in their lives for a fleeting second. That that exquisite cover drive off Wasim Akram or off, you know, Dale Stain or or Shane Warne gives a poor man as much pleasure as it gives a rich man. What next for Sachin Tendulkar, don't you? Well, I think some kind of political role, although knowing the man, I don't think he's going to be a particularly crusading person in any sense. He's already a, a member of the Indian Upper House of Parliament. Uh, he has been for the last few years. Uh, he was nominated, you know, there's, there are certain... Uh, there is a certain number of seats that's reserved for people by nomination based on, on, on distinguished contributions to public life, and Tendulkar is, is a member already. He's just been awarded uh, the Bharat Ratna, which is India's highest civilian award, which is, you know, award has been awarded to no more than about a dozen people since independence. So he, uh, I think he, if he wishes to, and he, and he must wish to because he's only 14, he's got something to do, surely. He must want to do something. Um he he's going to have to find some sort of public niche for himself. My my sense is that there'll be there'll be uh, some social aspect, some social cause that he will espouse. I think the most obvious thing for him to do, and the one that he would relish the most, is to is to open up a series of cricket academies across India and maybe some other parts of the world, uh, where you know uh, boys and girls from less privileged sections of society uh, get scholarships to learn how to play the game or to or to or to, or to or to be coached. Um, I think in addition to that, he's going to almost surely take on some sort of um, ambassadorial role for India, um, cultural ambassadorial role for India, at least in the countries of the Commonwealth, where he's recognized and respected. Um, but most of all, I would like him at least over the next six months to be able to to enjoy life once more, spend time with his kids and his wife and simply put his feet up. Yeah, it sounds like a, a well-deserved break is probably in order. Tunku Varadarajan, isn't it? It's been great talking to you. Thanks so much for taking the time today. My pleasure. I was particularly interested there, Murph, in what Tunku was saying about how revered he is and how it doesn't matter how poor many of the not that it doesn't matter how many poor how poor many of the Indian people are, but it just because they're poor doesn't mean that they don't idolize this guy. And in fact. They don't necessarily envy him for, for, for the wealth. There's no antipathy towards him. It's quite similar to, I think anyway, to Haile Gebri Selassie. I was over in Ethiopia last year and he's almost equally as big a legend, absolute hero over there. As his sporting career winds down, you might start thinking then that that's when any sort of antipathy, he's not a sports person mm-hmm. anymore. He still is a sports person for the time being, but he's, he's near enough to the end of his career and his business is ramped up. He's a huge businessman over there, coffee, the motor industry. He's got this massive big office block in the middle of Addis Ababa that he owns and runs all his businesses out of. And I, that thought occurred to me when I was over there. Do some, some of the poor people mm. in a very poor country not feel in some way alienated from this guy? But it doesn't seem to be the case. Now, he's a slightly different kettle of fish in that he's hugely charismatic. He seems quite accessible. He seems to be out and about quite a lot. And Maybe it was just the weekend I was over there. It was during the Great Ethiopian Run. But uh, he's a hugely outgoing guy different from Sachin Tendulkar maybe but he I, I don't think anyone begrudges him a penny of what he gets they seem to absolutely adore him over there which is somewhat similar yeah and I think that there is also an element of 
someone coming from a very poor background as Tendulkar and Gabriel Selassie have done has done and it's one of one of their own doing well for himself and managing to parlay a, an amazing sporting gift into a, a real life business empire and real I think success. he gives back as I think Gabriel Selassie I don't know, I'm not sure about Tendulkar I think Gabriel Selassie does give quite a bit back and do quite a bit for his country also so that that's maybe part of it but uh, we are almost out of time at this stage Murph don't forget about this though that's yeah <laughs> they have asked for that really uh, you can laugh I'm the walk up I'm a little bit of an idealist but having said that I want to be like me I'd say it to you, face, not say it to you now. I'm down Twanfield and we'll see them up with what you're doing down here, you shawny man. Yeah, second captain's football is already out. We put it out for you late last night, so do have a listen before the game if you get time. Or listen to it after the match and just see how wrong we were about just about everything. Uh, you can scroll down on the Irish Times page there, irishtimes.com forward slash second captains. It'll be on iTunes, all the usual places, wherever. However you're listening to this show, just go and do the same for a second captain's football. Thursday, Murph, you'll be getting a bit of P-Bezzle going so people can email I will. I will. Email secondcaptains at irishtimes.com. Uh, and if you don't have some photographs, you can just email me with your life story. That's fine too. You can follow us on Twitter at secondcaptains, facebook.com forward slash secondcaptains. We'll talk to you again very soon. Take care. Isaac Quainall, Tom Stewart. Now that KO has 4K, people will see every detail. I better wash my hair. Oh, I'll book in a spray tan. Maybe a manicure? I'm shining up my tats. Experience amazing detail with 4K. Now on KO. 